Um, it is always a pleasure to host uh, Spencer Dale, who's the chief economist at BP. Uh, he and his colleagues do a wonderful job uh, of producing an annual energy outlook that I think it does something very valuable. Uh, someone just asked me recently why we do so many uh, different outlooks and forecasts at CSIS, and I think one of the reasons is we spend a lot of time uh, with policymakers and people from different companies who have questions uh, about what's going on in the energy landscape, both in the near term and the long term, but more precisely, how all of these things that you're hearing about in the near term add up to a long-term scenario. And I think one of the things that outlooks can be very helpful with is trying to help us put a framework around those questions, trying to think through what are the important parts of those questions, what are the less important parts of those questions, uh, and what to watch as those trends, whether it's electric vehicles, which uh, this year's outlook has taken on, or other things evolve over a period of time. And I think the BP Outlook uh, this year has done an excellent job, not only of laying out all of those numbers that all of you data wonks really like uh, in the scenarios, but also in trying to answer some of the big strategic questions. So we don't have a huge amount of time, and Spencer uh, is going to give a presentation uh, of the Outlook, and then we'll have a discussion about some of your key questions. But Spencer, it's always such a delight to host you, and congratulations to you and your colleagues for another wonderful edition of the Outlook, and um, we look forward to having a discussion about it. So thanks for being here. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. Thank you all for sparing the time to come out for the, for the sort of the US launch of BP's uh, Energy Outlook. We launched it in London only uh, the end of last week, so this is um, hot off uh, the press. And it's always a pleasure to do it here in Washington. Washington is just about one of my favorite cities in the world. I, I came here, it's so nice. I spent the whole weekend here because I love it so much. I used to live here, and so it's always a, a joy to come. And then I particularly like coming to do this at CSIS. So this is um, it's sort of downhill from, from now, for, for me, from now on. So um, thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, so um, for those who aren't familiar with this, we, we do BP's Energy Outlook looks ahead at the forces shaping global energy markets um, this year out to 2040. So we've got ahead five more years. It goes out to 2040. The main reason for, for producing the Outlook it isn't to stand up and tell everybody else what we think. It's to help do our own internal planning, our own scenario analysis, our own strategy. That's why we produce um, the Energy Outlook, to help us do our own internal thinking. The view is then, well, if we've done it and other people find it helpful, why not um, share it with others? The, the real value for us in sharing it with others is when you share things with others, they're really good at telling you which bits are wrong. And then as a result of which, you, you learn um, an awful lot. Um, one of the biggest risks, I think, for more or less any organization is groupthink. And a really good way of avoiding groupthink is exposing where, what you, what you, where, you, where your thinking's got to and, and ask people what, what they think. So that's a, a very long way of saying, please um, feel free to lay into anything you hear during the Q&A session, which doesn't sound right. Now, at this point, you must be frightened and thinking, oh my God, do BP really think they can predict the future? That's really frightening. Um, no, of course not. Um, any single point forecast um, will be wrong. Uh, we know that. Uh, at, at all. The, the value of outlooks like this is not to try and predict the future. Rather, the value of outlooks like this is to try to better understand the uncertainty you face. That's the value of outlooks like this. So in, in today's outlook, um, um, 
We consider a whole range of different scenarios. Don't worry about thinking about what these scenarios are now. I'll take you through them, a whole range of them as we go through. But if you like, the way I think about scenarios are a statement, a sort of series of what-if statements. What if the world was like this? What if the world was like that? How does that change and shape the difference of the world? It leads to different, different impacts on, on the growth of energy demand and the fuel mix that's shown on the left-hand side. And if you've got differences in, in the demand for energy and the growth and the fuel mix, the implied power for carbon is also different, which is uh, on, the sh on the shape uh, to the right. Some what-if statements lead to very different outcomes, others less so. And by doing that type of what-if type of statement, you get to get a sense about what really shapes that uncertainty and which ones, are really un which ones make big differences, which ones don't. And that helps us think about things uh, within, um, within, ET, or within, within BP. And then just by aside, the way we think about this as an internal company is not to try and guess which one of these scenarios is most likely. Remember, any one of these scenarios will be wrong. Um, the value is for us is to try and pick a, a sort of strategy which is robust against a whole series of what-if statements, not just these few, but a whole series of sort of outcomes. And that's what I think of a resilient, uh, resilience means, if you like, not trying to pick the, guess the future, but trying to think about a whole uh, range. For the aim, for purposes today, I'm going to focus particularly the narrative around one particular scenario called the evolving transition scenario, what we've called the evolving transition scenario, or sometimes I refer to it as ET scenario if I'm getting uh, carried away. The evolving transition scenario is trying to give a sense about the broad path the global energy system will move along given um, if, if government policies technology, social preferences continue to evolve in a state and manner seen over the recent past. So in a very loose sense, think of the evolving transition scenario as sort of the path the global energy system looks to be broadly moving along, absent a shock, significant shock to policy or to technology. And I'll come back to the evolving transition scenario as I work through and, um, and then sort of think, see how what-if statements around that may affect um, things differently. Um, the, um, the real value of sessions like this, as well as getting feedback, is to try to tempt you to take away a copy of the Outlook, um, not to leave it here, take it away and, and have a look through it. I can only give you sort of a small um, taster for what's in, in, in the Outlook today. So this is to try to tempt your curiosity. The way we set up the Outlook this year is to frame it by looking at the Energy Outlook through three different windows. So by, um, the, by the who's using uh, the energy, the who, um, um, where that energy is being used, the what, uh, uh, or the where, and what energy is being used, the, the, few, uh, the, 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 the fuels which are, are being used. So the sort of who, uh, how, where, and what of energy. And the idea of this is by, if we're trying to think about the energy transition, much of the behavior and much of the shifting energy needs are in terms of thinking about the sector and by thinking about the region in which it's being done. The, the fuels often are just dropping out of that. And if we focus just on the fuels, we're going to miss a lot of that behavioral um, aspect. So I won't have time to go through all of this today, but within the book, there's a lot of analysis on the different sectoral uses and how that's evolving across the regions as well, and then the implications of that for, for different fuels. So that's how we sort of set up the energy outlook uh, this time around. Just briefly, in terms of um, the, the question of where those regions, all of the growth in, in global energy demand. So we have global energy demand, we expect in the evolving transition case, to grow by around a third over the next uh, 25 years out to 2040. So that growth 
Um, that equates to an average growth rate of around 1.3% per year in the evolving transition case. The average growth rate over the last 20, 25 years is closer to 2%. So slower growth than in the past, and that slower growth in the past coming about by improving, accelerating energy efficiency. The world getting better at better at doing more with less energy. All of that growth in, uh, in, in energy comes from the developing world, fast-growing developing economies, and led by China and India. And the story here, this is a world of growing prosperity. Um, we think, as the world gets more and more prosperous, we think something like two and a half billion people, that's around a third of the world's current population, move from low incomes into middle incomes over the next um, 25 years. And that growing prosperity drives increase in growth in, in, in um, energy demand. And that's what's driving the growth. Um, energy demand within the OECD, which is a sort of uh, green bars at the bottom here is flat. So all of the growth in, in energy markets are, are in, um, is in um, all the growth of global energy over the next 25 years is in these fast-growing developing economies. If you look on the chart on the right, China and India are counting um, for around half of that growth, shown in the two uh, blue bars, with China and India accounting for roughly for about a quarter of that growth uh, each. Um, if you look at the India's, which is a light blue bar here, India overtaking China from the 2030s onwards as a dominant source of energy growth. So up till now, when we think about what's been driving global energy, it's China. That remains the case in the near term, but there's a pattern of growth within China shifts, slower economic growth, less intensive energy growth. Um, that, pat the, the, that sort of the pattern of growth is passed to India as the dominant source of, of, of energy growth. If we go back to those three windows again and just think about the fuels, what's going on in the fuels, again, just focusing on the evolving transition scenario um, for a moment. Um, Renewable energy, shown here um, in, in orange, the, the bottom uh, bar here. Um, by, and when we think about renewable energy in BP, we, we take out hydro energy and put that, treat that separately. So this essentially is wind and solar and biofuels, which is driving this. Renewable energy, by far and away, the fastest growing source of energy, um, uh, accounting for around 40% of the total growth of primary energy over the next uh, 25 years in the evolving transition scenario. Its share rising from about 4% today to about 14% um, by 2040. Natural gas in red here also continuing to grow strongly. Its share overtaking coal by the mid um, overtaking coal by, by the mid-2020s and converging on uh, oil by, by 2040 as a sort of the dominant source of, of, of energy. And, and, and natural gas providing in the evolving transition uh, case about a third of uh, the world's energy. So renewables and natural gas together around three quarters of the growth of energy over the next um, 25 years. Oil continues to grow but at a slower rate and I'll come back um, to oil in contrast, coal essentially flatlines um, with sharp falls in outright falls in coal consumption in China and the OECD. And it seems increasingly likely to us that coal consumption in China has now peaked. But those falls in outright terms in both China and the OECD offset by increasing growth, particularly in India and other parts of fast-growing Southeast Asia. 
But that flat lining means that the share of coal and with its global energy declines quite sharply to its lowest level seen, uh, seen since the Industrial Revolution. What's interesting is this strong growth of um, renewable energy in, in particular means that in the evolving transition scenario, we're moving towards the most diversified uh, fuel mix the world has ever seen. So this chart just looks at the share of oil, gas, coal, and non-fossil fuels within um, primary energy. Um, it goes back to the 1900s, just to give you a sense of, this, um, of history here. And we're moving to a world uh, of what I would say is the most diversified fuel mix with um, oil, gas, coal, and non-fossil fuels, each providing around a quarter of the world's um, uh, energy. And this increasing diversity of, of, of energy adding to competitive pressures um, within, within, uh, within global energy systems. Sarah's mentioned earlier about the abundance of energy. So one aspect in terms of this competitive pressures is just the abundance of oil, the abundance of gas. Another aspect of these competitive pressures being the increasing co uh, competition across fuels as you reach the most diversified fuel mix the world has ever seen in the end of this scenario. What I thought that was the best way into this booklet is to, rather than take you through fuel by fuel or sector by sector or country by country, was to shape it around sort of six questions that we had in our minds, um, which certainly which our executives were saying, can you help us think about some of these uh, questions, Spencer? So sort of frame it in that space. So what have we learned about electric cars and the mobility revolution? And by the mobility revolution, I'm talking particularly here in terms of shared mobility and also um, fully autonomous cars. Um, the, you know, so the, the, uh, the tricky subject of when will global oil demand um, stop growing, that's my, my very careful phrasing without saying the word peak. Um, so when will global oil um, stop growing? Just how fast will renewable energy grow? Um, how resilient is the outlook um, for natural gas? Perhaps most importantly, is the transition to a lower carbon energy system happening fast enough? And then I've added this uh, final topic here, which is sort of what does all this mean for the US and the role that the US is playing in global energy markets? And how do we think about um, that? So we start, first of all, with this question about uh, electric cars. What have we learned about electric cars and the mobility revolution? And I framed it this way because it's, it's certainly to me, it feels like we're all learning about this process. We're learning about how to think about electric cars and mobility revolution and, and how, to, how best to analyze these issues. So um, we certainly haven't solved this problem. And this is sort of I'm giving this to you today in a sense of this is where our work has got to so far. So this is sort of an update of our work in progress of how our thinking has come to it. One where I think our thinking has moved on quite a bit is how to just think about just the, the measure of how quickly electric cars are penetrating the energy system. Nearly all the analysis um, so far focuses around the number of electric cars. Will there be 200, 300, 400 million cars um, um, in, in the world by, by 2040? What we have done, what we've instead, we've, we've thought of a measure as what's the share of vehicle kilometers traveled by cars powered by electricity rather than by other fuels? So the share of vehicle kilometers, the share of VKMs powered by electricity. And that's shown here in this, that share measure here is shown um, in the purple bar here. So the way to read this chart is this is a, the total distance traveled by, the passenger, by, by cars, passenger cars, split up into different types of fuels which are powering 
that system. And this is for the evolving transition scenario. And that purple component is the share of VKMs powered by um, electricity. And we think by 2040, that share goes from almost nothing to around 30% um, by 2040. Around half of that increase in, in, uh, of the share reflects an increasing number of electric cars. So we have the number of electric cars on the planet increasing from around 3 million cars today to over 300 million by 2040. And that share um, means, so, uh, but that's out of a share of a, a car park, which by then is about 2 billion cars. So that's about 15% of the car fleet. So about half of that increase is, is coming through the increasing number of cars. But the other half is coming through the increasing intensity with which cars are being used. And this increasing intensity effect links to the role of fully autonomous cars and shared mobility. So the story here, in the evolving transition scenario, we have fully autonomous cars, so fully autonomous self-driving cars, stage four or stage five uh, cars, for those who, who think about it in that way, starting to become available in the early 2020s. The nature of that technology is that initially, um, that technology will be so expensive, um, it will be those fully autonomous cars will largely be purchased by fleet services offering shared mobility services, think Uber or Lyft, rather than by private individuals. Some private individuals may be able to afford um, one of these cars, but those individuals most probably have a chauffeur today, so they don't really count. Um, the vast majority uh, of these cars will be, um, will be owned by fleets, uh, by fleets offering shared mobility services. Now, what's special about um, uh, this, the fully autonomous, uh, the, the, the involvement of fully autonomous cars is if I'm getting into an Uber car, but it now doesn't have to have a driver, the cost of that falls dramatically. We estimate it could easily reduce the cost of that by something like 40 or 50%. As a result of which, we expect to see a massive surge in the kilometers powered by shared mobility, fully autonomous cars. That's that big increasing sort of turt boys bar here. So as these, this, this, this technology comes, comes about, but the majority is in shared mobility cars, those sh the cost of those shared mobility services is so much lower, you get this big surge in, in shared mobility autonomous cars. The key point here, and here's the link to electric cars, is the low running cost of electric cars relative to conventional internal combustion engine cars. We think a vast majority of the shared mobility, fully autonomous, intensely used cars will be electric. And that increasing intensity is the other driver of the impact on um, um, driving up the, the amount of kilometers covered by electric cars. So point number one, I guess, is how's our thinking changed? Our thinking's changed because we've got, we think of a different way of measuring this. We think about not by numbers, but the, by, by, but by the share of kilometers powered by um, uh, electricity. Two key factors there. One is the number of cars, but, but equally important is the intensity of those cars and the game changer for autonomy. Uh, the game changer for intensity is autonomy. In terms of the impact on oil demand, um, I'm not going to go through all the analysis because we have, because uh, uh, we've run out of time, but I can do that in terms of the Q&A if people would like. The impact of these uh, electric cars on oil, on oil demand in the evolving transition scenario is relatively modest. It's around, it reduces oil demand by around 2 million barrels a day. 
despite this huge penetration, reduces oil demand by around 2 million barrels a day. For those of you um, who don't think in, that spa in this space, 2 million barrels a day is of a market which today is around 95 million barrels a day, and I'm going to tell you it's going like to carry on growing over this period of time. So the impact is relatively small. One reason why that impact is relatively small, and one sort of key intuition here, is because we think the impact of increasing numbers of electric cars will be offset somewhat, um, will be largely offset um, by it, uh, car manufacturers invest, investing, in less, investing less in other types of vehicle efficiencies. The story here, think about it in the US, if, if a car manufacturer needs to achieve a cafe standard, their, their overall cafe standard, they can achieve that cafe standard, that vehicle emissions target defined by the, the cafe standard by, by a number of different ways of doing that. They can sell more small cars rather than big cars. They can invest in various types of technologies like light weighting, stop-start types of technologies, or they can sell uh, more EVs, uh, more electric cars. If for whatever reason they sell more electric cars, they, they like electric cars because it's responding to customer needs or it's part of a strategy, that means as a result of which they can invest less in those other types of uh, things like selling small cars rather than big cars or lightweighting and, and still achieve their overall cafe standard. So as a result of which the net impact of electric cars is largely offset in terms of oil demand by less efficiency gains in other ways. And I think that's sort of a natural way of thinking about the way a cafe standard would work. And that's, that sort of averaging out effect is pretty common across most vehicle efficiency standards around the world. Another way of thinking about this is, well, BP would say this, wouldn't they? I mean, they were always going to tell me this story, but they're underestimating what's going to happen to, to electric cars. Of course they would do that. They're an oil company, so of course they're going to tell you a story where they don't um, have much effect. So let me take, so what we did, we, we took a scenario just to sort of get a, a benchmark about just how big these effects could be. So consider a ban. Um, so consider a ban where, suppose we go to a world where there's a worldwide ban on the sale of all internal combustion engine cars throughout the world by 2040. And we, um, so internal combustion engine cars, ICE or ICE cars. So we call this um, the, um, an ICE ban scenario. In fact, to make this really hard, not only do we put a worldwide ban on the sale of internal combustion engine cars, we also put a, world, a worldwide ban on the sale of plug-in hybrid cars as well. So this really should be um, uh, an ice and plug-in hybrid ban scenario, but it didn't work so well, it wasn't quite so snappy. We just called it an ice ban. Um, an ice ban like this would be um, more stringent than any ban any country anywhere in the world has announced so far, and we've, we've applied it worldwide. And what impacts could this have? So, just in terms of what the numbers look like here, the chart on the left here just gives you a sense of what's going on. So this is the share, share of battery electric cars in terms of the share of total car sales in the ice band scenario shown in green here. So we haven't sort of kept it more un unchanged until sort of 2039 and then put it all the way through. We've immediately this, come, this comes through very quickly. So a third of all car sales in 2030 are battery electric vehicles. That rise to two thirds by 2035 and 100% um, by 2040. And in terms of the impact that has on our sort of preferred measure in terms of that share um, of vehicle kilometres powered by electricity, that in the ice band around two-thirds of all kilometres travelled by cars in, 20, uh, in 2040 are powered by electricity. 
for those of you scratching your head were saying, well, why is it only two-thirds? Why isn't it 100% if, if we got the ban of ICE cars? This is a ban of ICE car sales. There were some sales prior to 2014 of those ICE cars, and they would still be in existence. So that's why it's only two-thirds. So this is a fairly, I think it's fair, it's fair to say, a fairly challenging scenario. So what impact does this have um, on oil demand? Shown here on, on, in the green bar here, we estimate that the impact, this, this would reduce oil demand by around 10 million barrels a day. So it'd roughly half the amount of oil um, being used by the car sector, this ice ban um, scenario. Now this is, a fair, this is clearly a fairly sizable impact on oil demand. It reduces oil demand by 10 million barrels a day. But the level of oil demand in this ice ban scenario is still higher in 2040 than the level of oil demand today. So it's around 100 million barrels a day oil demand in this ice ban scenario um, relative to sort of 97, 98 million barrels a day today. The suggestion that some people that the rapid growth in electric cars will lead to the collapse of oil demand is just not borne out by the basic arithmetic. Um, so I, I don't know how quickly uh, electric cars will grow. My guess is you don't know how quickly electric cars will grow. But if I take an extraordinarily uh, uh, challenging scenario here, more challenging than any ban any country anywhere in the world has imposed and put it worldwide, the level of oil demand is still higher in 2040 than it is and today. What impact, just by the side, what impact does this have on carbon and the carbon footprint, this, this type of ice ban? Um, I will come back to explain the basis of this chart um, in a while, but so just bear with me. Just, but let me just explain very briefly what this chart is. The blue line here is the path for carbon emissions in the evolving transition scenario, and that's continuing to grow, and it's growing by around 10%. Uh, and I'll come back and think about the challenges that poses in a minute. In contrast, um, in order to get a chance of achieving the Paris climate goals, most people would estimate that, that carbon emissions have to fall by something closer to 50%. That's shown here in that orange bar by the even faster transition. So if you like, that gap between those two lines gives us a sense of the carbon challenge um, we face. So how, what impact does the ice ban have in terms of meeting that challenge? Almost none. Okay, so uh, electric cars have many benefits, have many bene health benefits, have many potential benefits in terms of urban air quality, but reducing oil demand by 10 million barrels a day, although welcome, just does not move the dial in terms of carbon. And I'll come back to what does move the dial um, later on. So there may, may be many reasons or many questions and issues to which um, uh, internal combustion engine cars, uh, uh, electric vehicles, are the solution, but the carbon, um, the carbon challenge isn't sort of one of them. And just to be clear here, just to make this um, um, very sort of clean, when thinking about the electricity used, the additional electricity needed to generate, um, to power these additional electric cars, we assumed all of that additional electricity was powered by renewables, was generated by renewables, so it led to no increase in carbon emissions. So it's nothing to do with what's going on in the power sector. We assume all of this electricity has been uh, powered purely by, by renewables, but still just doesn't um, move the dial. Um, let me carry on. And so that's sort of the first question about electric cars and, and, and where's our thinking got to. And as I said, 
uh, this is new. We're carrying on thinking and hard about this issue. But I think um, that's where we got to up to now. And, and I think perhaps the real new thing here is not just thinking about numbers, it's thinking about intensity. And for intensity, it's autonomy which is the game changer. I think that's where a lot of where um, we've got to up to now. So the second question I thought was interesting is a very topical one is, is when is global oil demand um, likely to stop growing? And truthful answer is, I don't know. It all depends on the scenario, and it all depends on how we think about this. In the evolving transition scenario, so let me start with the evolving transition scenario, and then I'll, I'll move away um, from that. In the evolving transition scenario, oil demand continues to grow um, over, much of the hori uh, over much of the next 25 years, growing in total by around 13 million barrels a day, getting close to 110 um, million barrels a day by 2040. But you can see in the chart on the, on the right here, the pace of that growth is gradually slowing over time. And the key reason why that growth is gradually slowing over time is this fading impetus and stimulus from the transport sector, shown in the, um, in the blue lines, uh, the blue bars on the, on the right-hand side. The world continues to, to demand more and more transport services, both in terms of passenger transport and freight transport services. And the world, and um, we expect transport services to more than double over this period of time. But the increasing efficiency of those vehicles means you can travel further and further with, with less and less energy. And so, by, um, and so that gradually fades. And so by the last five years in this um, in the evolving transition scenario, oil demand um, is starting to, to fall. So in this scenario, oil demand stops growing in the late um, 2030s. Just a couple of uh, observations about um, this point here is, the pace of that decline in the last five years is pretty slight. So the cumulative fall in oil demand in the last five years is less than one million barrels a day. So or another way of putting it, it's around half the growth in oil demand we saw last year. So think uh, plateau rather than peak here. I think what's quite interesting in lots of conversations that people have is they somehow they sort of people seem to sort of slip a derivative. As soon as they think that oil demand stops growing, so somehow the world won't need uh, much oil. And, and the story here is to sort of think about that in that way. This is what shows, perhaps this next chart brings it in. So what I've done here, this is a level of oil demand under a range of different scenarios. Remember, I don't know what's going to happen. So we don't know when oil demand is going to go. So let's think of some what if statements. The, the ver in the evolving transition scenario is the light blue one at the top. The ice band scenario is that light green one, the second one in. So in, in the ice band scenario, it starts to, uh, oil demand starts to fall in the early 2030s and comes down. The, the lowest um, scenario here is that uh, even faster transition scenario I was talking to you earlier. And if you like, you can think of this, and I'll come back to it, it's like a backcast of what would the world need to look like if we to, to get um, uh, to have a chance of achieving the Paris climate goals. But even in this even faster transition scenario, the world is consuming around 85 million barrels a day um, out to 2040. So again, is it, think, think plateau, not peak. To put that in some sort of perspective, what does that mean? And again, this sort of uh, is quite important for a company like BP. Is this chart, this line here, is sort of a thought experiment and say, suppose the world stops investing today in oil. They just don't don't invest in oil at all, and let's assume that existing oil facilities decline at around a three percent decline rate. 
Now, when I present this chart internally at BP, my, some of my executives get very cross at this point, and they say, 3%, Spencer, do you know what would happen if we stopped investing in oil? 3% is tiny, but let's just, so this is, but let's just assume three. If anything, I think many of my executives would say it would be a lot bigger than three, that line would be a lot steeper, but let's just say 3%. Even with 3%, the world would be able to produce something like 40 or 45 million barrels a day of oil. That big white gap between that black dotted line and any of those oil demand scenarios tells you that the world will need to carry on investing in new oil production for many years to come in order to meet the world's oil needs, even in a scenario entirely consistent um, with um, um, the meeting the Paris Climate Goals, which is that, that orange bar. So think about, when thinking about peak oil demand, keep it into perspective. Think plateau rather than pink. And even when it stops growing, um, we are likely to need to carry on investing in oil for many years to come. And I think, again, I don't know which of those scenarios is likely to be the case. Remember, all of them will be wrong. But you have to work really hard for there not to be a gap between that black dotted line and, the, on, and an plausible oil demand scenario. And that's sort of something which is sort of helps us think about um, how we should position our portfolio going forward. Um, so if the world needs more oil, um, where's our oil um, going to, to come from? In terms of the oil supply story underpinning the evolving transition scenario, we have roughly, roughly half of the oil uh, um, coming, oil supply coming from US tight oil, and roughly half coming from OPEC members. And, and the sort of the temporal story here is initially much of the oil will come from US tight oil over the next 10 to 15 years. And as that, as that oil supply, US tight oil starts to, plan, uh, to, to plateau out, then, um, that the, then OPEC takes up. OPEC members takes up the, um, the additional growth. And the story in OPEC members is they gradually, OPEC members gradually diversify their economy, making them less dependent on oil. And as they become less dependent on oil, they're more able to start to pursue a strategy, a more competitive strategy of trying to gain market share. And that's why they're able to take a significant um, uh, amount of the growth in the second half of the outlook. But a big uncertainty when thinking of the exact split between US tight oil and uh, OPEC is just what sort of potential has a US tight oil to carry on um, growing. In the, the evolving transition scenario, we have US tight oil um, growing by around roughly an extra um, 5 million barrels a day from current levels, peaking at around 10 million barrels a day in the early um, 2030s. And as you can see in the right here, that's consistent with the level of rigs operating remaining pretty much flat around current levels, but with rig productivity levels picking up by around 40% or so. So that's like a, the, the evolving transition scenario. When thinking about the uncertainty surrounding that, I think there are two distinct sources of uncertainty associated with that pattern of US tight oil. One to do with um, the pace of growth. How rapidly can US tight oil grow over the next 5, 10, 15 years? And a key factor there is the factors which limit the pace of that growth, particular the availability of finance and other factors in the short run, fracking crews and so on, which allow, enable growth to pick up very rapidly. A second and sort of completely sort of separate question, or not completely separate, but a but distinct question is, what's the underlying resource base? What the geology and how, for how long can um, US tight oil carry on growth? So the first one is about the pace of that growth, and the second one, the duration of that growth. 
So consider first a scenario in which those financial factors and the patterns, uh, the factors which hold back, uh, which enable growth to grow rapidly in the near term, and they see you, enables a far more rapid growth in, in U.S. tight oil. So in this scenario, we have U.S. tight oil reaching about 12 million barrels a day by the early 2020s. But if the total oil production, uh, uh, um, the total oil production in this scenario was the same as an evolving transition scenario, which is about 70 billion barrels a day, it would then have to fall back far more quickly such that the overall production um, was the same. So this is a story here, purely one of timing. It's not telling you anything about the underlying resource base. The underlying resource base is the same. It's purely telling you about the ability of finance and fracking crews and other things which enable a far more rapid growth in the near term and then coming off. And I think as a pure economic story, if you were to sit down uh, uh, and thought, think about this in abstract, a sort of peak up and down type pattern of growth would be a far more natural Thing, natural sort of pattern for, for production than the sort of up and, and, and plateauing. The alternative scenario, suppose the resource base is, is say, allows total production to be around 50% higher than, than we expect in the evolving transition scenario. So something like 100, a little more than 100 uh, billion barrels over the next uh, 25 years. That would allow U.S. title to carry on growing um, up to around 15 million barrels a day and then remaining and then plateauing in the 2030s and, and staying at that higher level. So that's telling you about the resource base. One thing I think which is quite striking here, if you look at the pattern of growth over the next five to seven years, it all looks pretty similar under all these different scenarios. So if we, when we see um, U.S. title growing, over the next five to seven years, it'd be hard for us to understand which of these paths are on. And if we see it growing rapidly, is it growing rapidly just because the financial factors are allowing it to grow rapidly and it may be followed by a sharp um, sort of up and down? Or is it growing rapidly because it's telling us something about the underlying resource base? And I think it'd be hard to know. And those two things, in some sense, um, are distinct. If I move on to the third question of just how, just how fast will renewable energy um, grow? Uh, the, the back story here is BP, uh, just about with everybody else, has been surprised by the pace at which renewable energy uh, has grown, particularly uh, solar energy, which has grown far more rapidly um, than, than, than we expected, and as a result of which we consistently revised up our outlook over the last few years. Some of that is coming about through um, just the pace of technology, the pace at which um, wind and particular solar costs are falling. Some of it's coming about by increasing, um, by, by government support being stronger um, than we expected, particularly uh, in China and India. Around half of our upward revisions, if you like, are coming about in China and India, where the, the pace of that, uh, the, the level of support has been greater than we, than we thought. So the obvious question is, is all, so have we learnt um, our lesson in terms of the growth of renewable energy. In the evolving transition scenario, evolving energy is certainly growing uh, quickly. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the share of, of um, or renewable energy accounts for over 50% of the growth of, um, uh, of energy within the power sector. The share of renewables in the power sector growing from around 7% today to around 25%. Um, by 2040. As you can see on the chart on the left here, that growth of renewable power becoming increasingly broad-based rather than being driven particularly by the EU 
China, and then increasingly India taking over as the main drivers of that growth. And in the evolving transition scenario, the pace at which renewables gain share in the power sector, shown here on the right, quicker than any fuel ever seen uh, um, in, in the power sector in the past. So certainly strong growth. But um, there's still clearly the possibility that we may continue to be surprised um, on, the, on the upside. In the evolving transition scenario, what we assume is that the scale of government support for wind and solar power is gradually phased out um, over um, by the um, late 20, or early 2030s, as as as, um, as the world as renewable energy, uh, wind and solar, increasingly around the world, is able to compete uh, against um, coal and, and gas and um, without the need for subsidies. But suppose we're surprised by the level of policy support, and suppose policy support remains at, at around the current levels to the end of the outlook. So rather than being phased out in the evolving transition case, suppose it remains at these high levels throughout the whole of the outlook. That's what we, is shown here in what we call the renewable push scenario. So the story here is far stronger government support for renewables remain, maintaining at that current levels. And in this current um, levels, um, renewable energy accounts for almost or well over 90% of the total increase in power generation in this scenario, with a share of power, uh, with a share of renewables within the power sector reaching about 40% by 2040, compared to 25% um, in the evolving transition scenario. So the message I took from this was there's still plenty of scope for us to be surprised on the upside by renewables if government support turns out to be stronger um, than we expected. What's um, quite interesting here is this renewable push scenario leads to a, a quite a, start, a significant reduction in carbon intensity in the power sector shown in the middle bar here. So, all the, the, um, on, the, so on the panel to, um, on the right-hand panel here, we can see um, the, re the reduction in carbon intensity in the evolving transition scenario and then in the re renewable push scenario. And as you can see, um, quite a significant reduction in, in that. But quite small, um, only around half the reduction in carbon intensity as you see in, the in that even faster transition scenario I was talking to you a minute ago. And I think this is symptomatic that in scenario, in policies which focus purely on pushing renewables, you start to get diminishing effectiveness of that policy. As renewables become an increasingly important share of the power sector, the cost and difficulty of dealing with the intermittency issue um, increases, and as a result of which, then the, the effectiveness of that policy starts to um, mitigate. In contrast, in the even faster transition scenarios, the main factor policy measure which is driving that um, is higher carbon prices. And those higher carbon prices, as well as encouraging greater use of renewables, in addition, also encourages a greater switch away from coal into gas. So it encourages a coal gas switching and also greater deployment of, of CCS. And so the story here is one, if you just have a purely policy, purely aimed at renewables, you start to get diminishing effectiveness, which you don't get with a more holistic carbon price type scenario, which encourages other behaviors um, as well. How are we doing for time? We, um, uh, ten to, so about five minutes? Yeah, okay, so we're more or less there. Um, 
How resilient is the outlook um, for natural gas? If I took a poll of, of all of you, if you walked in, I think um, one of the scenarios, one thing where I think almost sort of where there'd be almost greatest consensus, and certainly amongst the commentators today where there's most consensus, is the outlook for natural gas um, is pretty robust. Most people expect natural gas to grow strongly and at least far more strongly than either oil or coal um, over um, the, the next 25 years. So if you have a job like mine and you're faced with that sort of consensus, the obvious thing is to say, well, how could that be wrong? Um, um, remember, the whole point of this is to understand um, the uncertainty. So how resilient is that outlook for natural gas? Or, or if you like, how could that consensus um, be wrong? Um, the evolving transition scenario conforms um, to the consensus. So um, we expect in the evolving transition scenario, natural gas grows strongly, supported by strong growth across both regions and, and by sector, as I, um, that, it's an average growth rate of around 1.6% um, per year, as I said, accounting for around a third of um, all growth of primary energy over the next 25 years. When thinking about how this could be wrong, rather than thinking about the sources of growth in terms of a particular sector or a particular region, what we thought was, let's think about it, let's think about the sources of growth slightly differently, and let's split it up into two components. The first component here I've called switching effects. And switching effects is um, particularly gas gaining share relative to coal. And in addition, also gas gaining share relative to oil in the transport sector. So one source of growth for gas is this switching effect, as you get the switching away from gas, away from coal into gas. And then there's the other, and in some sense, if it's not through switching effects, there's a whole range of other effects, um, particularly driven by increasing um, GDP growth. If we think about those switching effects, gas gaining share, um, particularly relative to coal, some of those are coming about through pure economics. So particularly here in the US, the increasing availability of cheap natural gas crowding out coal. But some of it is coming about through policy effects, through um, different types of policies encouraging a shift um, away from coal into cleaner, lower carbon fuels with natural gas as well as renewables um, potentially gaining from it. What happens if, that, if that, that policy support fails to materialize? So what happens if that policy support fails to materialize, coal is stickier than we expect, and as a result of which there's less growth for gas to come um, through. So to get a, a sense of that, we say, well, let's think about a scenario where there was no coal to gas switching in, in Asia or the EU, the two areas where that switching is most pronounced, and also no, almost no um, um, oil to gas switching in the transport sector. Just how vulnerable would we be to, poly, to environment, environmental policies being, if you like, less stringent um, than we expected? And that's shown here in this less gas um, uh, switching um, scenario. In this less gas switching scenario, oil demand, the growth of oil demand is around a third lower. So rather than growing by around 1.6%, it's growing by just over a percent a year. So still stronger, significantly stronger than either oil um, or, 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 or um, coal, but, but about a third weaker than we thought. And this is coming about through environmental policies being less stringent than expected. Flip to the other side. Rather than environmental policies being less stringent than expected, they may be more stringent than we expected, and that could, could crowd out the opposite direction. Think about that renewable push scenario that we just talked about. That renewable push scenario, as renewables are pushed into the power sector, coal is squeezed out, but natural gas is also squeezed out. 
In that, in that renewable push scenario, shown here in the lilac, oh, sorry, uh, shown in the, in the lilac um, bar, um, the growth of natural gas is also around 1% or so. Um, so it, slower growth again, this time by environmental policies being stronger um, than expected. As you can see, uh, in the faster transition and the even faster transition scenario, the growth of gas is, is even um, weaker. The story here, and you think about that even faster transition scenario, um, not only are you encouraging a shift away from um, gas into renewables, you've also got a whole series of policies designed to improve energy efficiency. And so both of those things are pushing on, on overall gas demand. But the way to think about that even faster transition um, is that the level of gas demand in 2040 and that even faster transition is broadly similar to the level today. I mean, it's a very, very small negative growth rate. So roughly, roughly, the level of um, global um, gas consumption in 2040, even in that even faster transition scenario, um, similar to, to, to current levels. Um, so in terms of that how, how resilient story, there's a sort of Goldilocks aspect to um, natural gas demand in terms of um, environmental policies. So relative to what we assumed in the evolving transition scenario, potentially exposed to environmental policies being weaker than expected or stronger than expected. If it's just focused on individual policies, um, um, either sort of less coal to gas switching or renewables push, that vulnerability relatively limited, but a more holistic approach, um, more exposed. Two more questions, and I think I'll bring it in in time, uh, or a few minutes over. Um, so the, the, the penultimate question is, um, is this transition to a lower carbon energy system happening um, fast enough? In some sense, you saw the answer um, a moment ago. In the evolving transition scenario, shown in the blue line here, um, we estimate that carbon emissions continue to rise, rising by around 10% or so over the next 25 years. That compares with what most people expect then you need to see to achieve those Paris climate goals um, uh, targets, which is a falling carbon emissions of around 50%. That's shown here by, this, by the, um, the even faster transition um, scenario. And what we've done when we're computing the even faster transition scenario is the fall in carbon emissions in the even faster transition scenario essentially just follows the path of the IEA's sustainable development um, scenario. So what we've done here is just followed exactly the same path um, as they have done. Remember, the evolving transition scenario is trying to pick up a sort of broad path the global energy system is moving along based on the current uh, sort of pace at which technology and government policies are evolving over time. So the clear message here is we need a far more decisive break from the past than the current momentum in policies and technologies would imply if we're to stand a good chance of achieving the Paris Climate Goals. We need some sort of shock relative to the path we're on at the moment if we're going to move off that, that sort of blue trajectory and get closer um, to the orange trajectory. The even faster transition scenario is one particular path which we, um, um, which, which, or one particular sort of outcome, set of policy outcomes, um, which, which, which get us um, there, um, with a big role for carbon pricing operating in the power system, improving uh, sort of regulation, driving improving efficiency um, across other sectors, and also increasing um, fuel switching. 
I think the honest answer, at this point, we're reaching our, our sort of limits of our modeling capabilities within BP. If you, so I would not wish to use this type of, of, of scenario to give policy advice about exactly what the precise policy mix would be to achieve it. Rather, it's trying to, rather the focus in the energy outlook is to sort of think, well, what implications does this have for the energy system? What, what sort of impact could this energy system, um, what does it look like? And that's what's shown in, in this slide here, where um, energy demand is continuing to grow, but less um, rapidly. A feature of the even faster transition scenario is much of the additional abatement of, of, of um, carbon happens in the power sector. Um, and, the and if you look across other types of scenarios which have big falls uh, in carbon emissions, um, many of those show a significant amount of the additional abatement coming in the power sector. And the intuition for why so much of it's in, in the power sector is because A, the power sector is a huge absorber of primary energy, and secondly, it's a one, it's a one sector where different fuels Coal, gas, renewables compete side by side. So relatively small changes in, in relative prices can have big impacts um, in terms of uh, the fuel mix. And my general sort of approach, if I'm speaking to a politician or policymaker and they want to make a significant uh, change uh, to carbon uh, outlook, is to start by talking about the power sector. And then if we have some time, we talk about the power sector a bit more. And if we have some time again, we should talk about the power sector even more. If you're speaking to somebody, a politician, a policymaker, and they want to make significant difference to the carbon outlook, and they're not talking about the power sector first, second, and third, you should ask them. Because this is true as an outcome from the BP scenario, but is, is a feature across many other scenarios far more sophisticated than ours. It's the power sector is where the action is. Related to that point uh, in terms of electric cars and what moves a dial, it's the, it's, um, it's the power sector which really moves a dial in terms of carbon emissions. Um, uh, in terms of the fuel mix, renewable energy by far and away the strongest energy source in, in the even faster transition scenario, accounting for all of the growth in primary energy, its share increasing to around a third of total primary energy by 2040. But just, just pause for a moment. If renewable energy is providing a third of the world's energy in 2040, something else must be providing the other two thirds even in the even faster transition scenario, even, in consistent, uh, even um, entirely consistent with the Paris goals. And in um, um, the majority of that is coming from oil and gas, with oil and gas providing around 40%, or a little bit more than 40% of the world's energy in that even faster transition scenario. So now somebody's telling me I must um, get to the final question and, and um, wrap up. But the point here is um, oil and gas remaining a significant part of the world's energy system, um, even in the even faster transition scenario out to 2040. Very quickly then, as, as this, before the, um, I'm told to really wrap up, what role does the US play in global energy markets here? What does all this mean for the, the US, which seems a sort of an important question? The strong growth, importantly, the strong growth in U.S. tight oil and U.S. And, and, and shale gas means that the U.S. is becoming by far and away the major producer of both oil and gas over this outlook. So uh, in terms of oil, the sh U.S.'s share of oil growing from around 12% today to around 18% by uh, 2040. 
The second largest producer of oil out in 2014, the evolving transition scenario, is Saudi Arabia, with a share of around 14%. So in terms of million barrels a day, the US producing something like close to 22, 23 million barrels a day of oil and other liquids. Um, Saudi Arabia is close to around 15 or so. So major producer, or, or um, the US, um, the sort of dominant producer of oil. The US's um, production of gas even more significant with, with the US producing around a quarter of, of the world's gas. Um, the second largest producer, Russia, about 14%. So massive um, uh, growth and sort of leadership role in terms of both the oil and gas production. But the US also remains the world's largest consumer of gas and the world's second largest consumer of oil. And so its share of exports is shown here in this very small um, green bar here, um, bars here. I hate charts where you can't see um, sort of what's really important, but that's what's important here. Um, even though, um, because of the, the increasing oil uh, and consumption, of, uh, or the, the importance of consumption in the US of oil and gas, its share of its exports as a proportion of world trade remaining very small, um, sort of less than 10% of global world trade. And its net um, exports of oil and gas, less than half that of, of Russia, which we expect to be the largest exporter of oil and gas over this period of time. Um, one other point to note is in terms of renewable energy, the US, which has been um, in, recent by, in recent times the dominant producer of renewable energy, its share gradually declining over time, with China becoming by far and away the dominant producer of um, renewable energy. So a, a sort of um, shifting pattern in terms of the US's um, role within the global energy system. Um, I've now overrun. I will not go through my summary, and I will stop and hand over to questions. Thank you very much. So I forgot another one of those reasons why I like when Spencer is here is I don't have to be bad cop. His team does it for him, you know, trying to tell him you have to wrap up. Stop, stop, stop talking. Uh, thank you very much. That was a really excellent presentation. Lots of things to think about there. I want to two flags really quickly because uh, I want to get to questions. We have about a half hour to get all of your questions in. Uh, I'm going to ask you just one. I'll have to try and restrain myself a little bit. But if you are watching uh, online, you can uh, tweet your questions in using the hashtags CSIS Live, and then hopefully my colleague uh, Lisa can send them to me in a condensed form, and uh, we'll try and get them into the mix. Um, and also, you spent a lot of time on peak oil, uh, uh, sorry, plateau oil uh, scenarios. Uh, we have a, a, a all-day conference tomorrow where we're looking at near-term U.S. tight oil production, uh, not out to sort of 2025 or 2040, but really sort of next 12 to 18 months. So if any of you have an abiding interest in that, please uh, uh, feel free to attend or watch online again. Um, Spencer, so one of the things, you spend a lot of time on electric vehicles, and that seems quite appropriate because we get questions about electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, and um, it's really remarkable what we don't know. Uh, about something that people are talking an awful lot about. It seems like Bitcoin in that way. Um, and uh, one of the things, we had the IEA digitalization uh, uh, report come here, and one of the things that they talked about is the combination of AVs and EVs, uh, in their approximation, was either going to uh, increase uh, fuel consumption uh, by, or it was going to double it, or it would decrease by half. 
Uh, and so that basically said that one of the main things we don't understand about that scenario is how people use those vehicles. Yes. Uh, and then the second thing is infrastructure, right? There is no given ratio uh, about what an autonomous electrified transportation fleet is going to need. Is it a one-to-one? -one? Is it one, you know, is it a, you know, one fueling station to every 700 vehicles? What is the ratio going to be? Did you consider those things in your EV scenario, or did you kind of not deal with them on purpose? Uh, so we, it, um, we didn't deal with. Um, I'm not sure it's on purpose. It was on reality of what we were able to do. So our modeling on that what dr driving that sort of story that big increasing uh, sort of turquoise bar of sort of shared autonomous shared mobility autonomous cars is based on a sort of consumer choice model so it's a consumer choice model where where they have a dim the need for, tr for for transportation and they're thinking well how could i trans how could i do that i could go by private car i could go by a bus i could go by train or i could go by taxi if you like if shared mobility and each of those have different attributes in terms of their cost, their convenience, pace, the time, times it takes, and so on. And what you do is then say, well, suppose the cost of one of those things reduces by 50%. Once you solve that, that consumer choice model, guess what? I mean, you get a huge shift away from particularly private cars and buses, less from trains, because trains have a unique sort of pace at which you can, and convenience factor. If you can get a seat on a train, they're quick and you can work. So it's quite hard to displace trains, but a big displacement of private cars and buses into this shared autonomy. What we haven't yet got the sophistication to do is then say, well, do people just travel more? Um, and we just, and I think that's, that's open. Um, there's some work I've seen from uh, University of California, Davis, where they're starting to do some sort of um, case study work and saying to people, do you travel more? This, and, and the argument appears to be yes. But there is also one of these amazing constants in, in, the, in which, if you look back over sort of, you know, I think hundreds of years, is the time that people take traveling to work, the average travel to time, um, travel to work time hasn't deviated very much at all over huge periods of time. As transport has become more efficient, people can live further away from their place of work, but the amount of time they've taken to travel hasn't changed. So I don't know how this will pan out, and we held that constant. My, my instinct as an economist is the cost of travel goes down. To some extent, the demand will go up. I just don't know how much, but I haven't taken that into account yet. Um, the other one is... If, is I think this will come in waves. The, the, I think when people say, well, what's a new world look like? I always say, I'm not sure there is a new world. I think in terms of shared mobility autonomy, the 2030s will be defined by these fleet services. But by the end of our scenario, towards 2040, the cost of that autonomy is coming down, such increasingly they're being brought by private individuals. And so the idea that shared mobility goes up and up and up and nobody will ever buy their own car again that's not what this story is saying. It's saying the first wave in the 2030s may well be in terms of fleets, but then the second wave may well be private individuals owning um, their own autonomous car. I think the, the needs of, in terms of recharging type stories for a fleet are quite different from that of a private um, individual. If you're a private individual, you may well have the uh, luxury of being able to charge your car overnight um, over on a, on a slow charge. 
If you're a shared mobility service and your whole, your whole business model is using that car very, very um, intensely, you don't want to put it on a slow charge for, 80, uh, for, you know, for, for six hours. You want to do it in a far quicker way. Indeed, if you own big fleets, it may well be that battery swaps make more sense um, for you than doing supercharging. Now, battery swaps for private individuals may not make any sense at all, um, but if you all can internalize the cost of those batteries, and it may well be fleet services, batteries are doing it differently. So we don't, get in, we don't deal with that here. We just sort of assume infrastructure allows the economically efficient outcome to evolve. But I think that's, how our think that's where my thinking is, and I just think the needs of a fleet may be very different to the needs of a household, and, and so 2040s may be quite different to the 2030s, and don't try and pick your sort of solution for the new world today because there may be multiple worlds um, going forward. I think that's a good point because I think on the electric vehicle side of the equation you do see uh, sort of a more understood set of policy options that policymakers are considering on the alternative, uh, on the autonomous vehicle side, it's really kind of evolving, even from the safety's perspective. And then if you think about whether you're going to care about the emissions profile or the energy consumption profile, it's a different set of policies that policymakers haven't landed on yet. Okay, we're going to take questions from the audience. I'm going to take them in groups of three. Please state your name and affiliation and question in the form of a concise question, please. Nikos. Thank you. Nikos Tafos, Energy Consultant. I wanted to ask you about total primary energy consumption. I was just kind of eyeballing the even faster scenarios, and at least when I looked at my phone, they seem even higher than the IEA sustainable development uh, scenario. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the overall number. And the, to just to add a little bit of color, one of the things I really loved about the BP Statistical Review is look at the UK and the amount of energy consumption declines that have happened in the UK over the last 10 years and whether or not that could give a hint as to what might come in the future. Thank you. And then we're going to go to Herman next. Go to Herman. Herman Franson, Energy Intelligence. Uh, two quick questions. You de-emphasize deep water. You put the emphasis on uh, US and on OPEC in the, uh, whereas we had a lot of very good discoveries recently, uh, ranging from Mexico, US Gulf of Mexico, Guyana, and so on. I would like to know why. The second one is related to electricity and gas, where all the majors, particularly European majors, are becoming more gas companies than oil companies. It seems very difficult to penetrate that power sector for a whole variety of reasons. How, how do you see that happening? Thanks. Uh, Kathy Mulvey with the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm wondering if you can speak, given the um, aiming for a shareholder resolution that the company supported and the recommendations of the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, how do you see the, uh, what seems to be the, I guess the even faster transition would be the 2C scenario. How does that feed into the company's financial reporting on what a, what a 2C or lower scenario means for the business? Oh, no, let me do those um, quickly. Um, so, so, Nikos, you're right. So the, the share that we have, it's essentially, if you're going to achieve the same carbon uh, outcome uh, as, as in the IEA, you either need to do it by energy intensity or carbon intensity, so using less energy or using cleaner energy. Um, in our even faster transition scenario, um, the, the, there's a greater emphasis on on fuel switching and less on energy intensity. 
I don't feel strongly about that. I don't think I'm saying I've got some great insight the IEA hasn't. The IEA has about an army of people. I have about five doing mine. This is where I was trying to say, look, we're reaching the limits here. So what we've got in terms of uh, the energy efficiency sort of assumptions here are pretty strong. So we've taken the IEA sort of for buildings, their sort of, opt or sort of maximum or optimal energy efficiency, and we've assumed all of that in the even faster transition case. We've really crammed and sort of ramped up the vehicle efficiency standards, but they get more, in, uh, more action than we do. And in some sense, I hope that you can get more there because that's just, you know, if we can just be more and more efficient, that's got to be the smart thing. So I don't, I don't feel, I don't think I should, uh, I have some sort of insight here, and that's why I, my view is sort of, um, in previous outlooks, I've compared across a whole range of scenarios consistent with sort of Paris climate goals, trying to say, look, let's just try and pick out some common elements here. And the common elements are significant improvements in both. Uh, secondly, the, the power sector is where all the action is, and that's why I was so comfortable about making that power statement, because it's not just based on mine, it's based on the IEA, it's based on MIT, it's based on a whole range of, of others. And third is that oil and gas still do provide a major role, uh, play a major role in, in all of those sort of major scenarios. And that, that's what I was trying to bring out here rather than sort of that precise point. Um, in terms of, Herman, in terms of um, deep water, I don't think I'm sort of trying, it's sort of, it's a problem with, um, how you um, sort of ag so when you when you do decompositions about what drives what is how you sort of parcel parcel that up in net terms the the, the two big growth centres here are uh, lower 48 and OPEC that's what's the, uh, in net in net terms within deep water there's some new new production coming through obviously but there's also some um, declining facilities and those sort of things net net out when thinking about the overall I think the story here is one of the world needing continuing investment in oil, but that, that, that oil market becoming increasingly competitive over time. And so you needed to make sure that you invest in, in low cost advantaged oil. Now, some of those deep water projects will be low cost and, and advantaged oil. Um, low cost is an obvious thing. Advantage, when we use the word advantage in BP, it means is you may be in, in a basin which is quite high cost, but if you've got so much infrastructure around it, you can tag on extra production relatively cheaply, then it's advantaged. The other thing which may shift this pattern here, in this world of abundance, there's a pressure, increasing pressure on countries to make sure that their oil is um, produced and invested in rather than somebody else's oil. And if you're in a, a basin which is relatively high cost, the one way you can compete is you shift your fiscal, fiscal terms to make yourself more competitive than, than in the past. So what we may think of high-cost basins today may look less high-cost in the future if you start getting sort of this endogeneity of, of fiscal um, responses. Um, in terms of the power sector, the, the, we didn't have time to go into this today. Um, the power sector accounts for roughly 70% of the growth in primary energy over the next, in, in, in the evolving transition scenario. So around 70% of the growth in primary energy in the evolving transition scenario is absorbed in the power sector um, as the power sector grows and the world electrifies. It seems to me 
if you're an energy company like BP, you can't have a business strategy for the next 25 years without having a strategy for power, which is 70% of your growth um, market. So um, that's why I think you see many energy companies, BP including them, talking increasingly about power, because as the world electrifies, it becomes increasingly important as a, as a growth um, market. Um, in terms of um, what does this mean for, for BP, uh, and you're absolutely right in terms of the shareholder resolution, our commitment to do that. What we try and do here is what this uh, document does is provide a sort of an evidence base, which we can then calculate that. Uh, I think it's next month or the month after we will be producing our sustainability um, report. We always, BP produces an annual sustainability report. And in that document, we consider the implications of a variety of scenarios, including the even faster transition uh, uh, for BP as a company. So um, I'm not going to duck it, but I don't want to try and guess, preempt um, something which is coming out in the sustainability report. But this is very much a, a sort of building block, if you like. For that, um, for that transparency, and that transparency is then we, we then do as part of the um, the annual sustainability report com coming out. Okay, great. Um, I've got two questions from Twitter, and then I'll try and take two from this audience. Do so. I have to speak in really short answers? For yeah. The, to Twitter yeah, back? you kind of do. <laughs> 140 characters. Either that, or we can stay yeah, here all day. But I think I'll get that, I'll yeah. start getting the the dirty looks uh, from from your folks. Uh, so the first one is: Can you talk a little bit about battery storage in the power sector? Uh, and then second is, how real is CCUS in the even faster transition? Uh, and so that, I think that's a, uh, also kind of speaks to this last question. And then we'll do one right here, Adam. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. Uh, returning to the question of primary energy, um, renewables the primary is 100% of the delivered energy. When we're at a couple percent, it doesn't really matter. But you know, wind and solar, we're not counting the total wind. We're not counting the total sun. So as we're discussing this, to what extent do you even, do you, does it matter that when you say primary solar wind, it's delivered energy. So that percentage in 2040, the actual delivered energy by that renewable across all your scenarios is much, much higher than that primary energy. And how much does that matter in our discussions? Two here, if we can. Ken, in there. Thank you. Uh, Henry News of Central Gulf Lines. It seems that most of your scenarios consider endogenous factors. Do you ever look at exogenous factors? I'm particularly interested in um, whether you've looked back at the impact of World War I and World War II on energy demand and supply, and considering the return of great, great power rivalry, what a war between communist China and the U.S. or Russia and the U.S. would due to uh, in global energy supply and demand and to bound uncertainty. Let's assume that war is conventional and not nuclear. <laughs> Thank you for adding that last constraint. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hi, Ken Austin, U.S. Treasury. I just have a question uh, about your slide 27, and it's actually on uh, 98 of the presentation, where you talk about the uh, and, the EFT, and you talk about the reduction in carbon intensity by 100%. How did you yes. get to, is that mean we're going to all renewables and other, and maybe nuclear, and you have not only intraday storage, but intraseasonal storage, and where does that storage come from? Because you really didn't go into the storage question. Yep, so that relates to 
the battery storage thing. Um, so just do that final one. So we, in the even faster transition scenario, there's an almost entire decarbonization of the power sector, which is why you get almost to 100%. Um, but that decarbonization of the power sector includes a, a, a significant role for CCS. So it's not that you're only using renewables or nuclear, you're continuing to use uh, gas, n almost no coal, but you're continuing to use gas, but there's a CCUS component to that, which is allowing that to be decarbonized. So, so there's, that's a significant um, role there. So that relates to the first bit of the question is, what sort of role is there for CCUS in the even faster transition scenario? And that there is a significant role, and that's allowed or enabled by high carbon prices. So we have significantly high carbon prices. Again, this is when I'm somewhat nervous putting a number on this, because I think this is where our sort of, we start to wave our hands are here, but comfortably above $100 um, would be a sort of good way of doing it. Comfortably above $100 in that even faster transition scenario. There, there's a role uh, for CCS or CCUS in terms of carbon capture use and storage. I think perhaps where my sense of speaking to the technologists who understand this, how the thinking has moved over the, over the last few years, that role of CCUS playing a big role within the power sector, but also increasingly within industry as well. So a significant role for, for the use of CCUS within, within industry. Um, there is almost no role for CCS or CCUS in the evolving transition scenario. And in a sense, I think that's one of the worries that we should be having. If you think about our analysis, but don't look, we have no monopoly of sort of, uh, sort of insight here. Look across a whole range of scenarios um, consistent with achieving those Paris climate goals. There's a role in terms of an economically efficient transition for CCS to play a role. If you're not seeing CCS happening, endogenously happening, worry about that because it means either you're on an inefficient path or you're not on the right path at all and so in some sense if you if you're not seeing it you should be worrying because it sounds that one way or another we're not on a, on a sensible um solution in terms of um battery storage uh at a um in terms of a utility wide in the evolving transition scenario, there's not much, there's not a significant role for battery storage, partly because the intermittency issue isn't that significant in, in that case. Although um, uh, renewables are growing, they're still only getting to around 25% or so of the power sector. And at that point, the levels of intermittency are, are not that difficult to deal with. And so the, the need for battery storage at that point um, isn't um, coming through so much. I think. Our view is as we go out to the even faster transition scenario, you can start to use battery storage to deal with the sort of intraday aspects associated with um, uh, intermittency. So um, if there's points of the day when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining, you can use some battery storage increasingly to be able to provide some of that intraday thing. But the ability, if you're in Northern Europe and you're using solar power, the big intermittency problem is not intraday, it's intra-season. So what's you going to do? What's going to provide power for two or three months? Battery storage isn't solving that problem, and that's one of the problems. That's one of that sort of the the diminishing returns we're getting from renewable policies. And um, uh, Bob Dudley, um, the CEO of, of BP, will, will often frame this in saying, um, when thinking about the the, the challenges associated with with Paris, is, is he would he often frames it: it's not a race for renewables. 
It's a race to reduce carbon emissions. And, and there are many ways of doing this. And if, if it's just a race for renewables, then you can start to hit those diminishing issues. So one of the beauties of a carbon price is it encourages renewables, but it also encourages coal to gas switching. It also encourages CCS, and as a result of which, it's a more effective holistic policy than just doing a race um, for renewables. Um, Adam, I'm not sure I've really got your question. We may need to take it offline. Um, well, give, me, give me one more go. Actually, if you wait for a mic, because um, um, otherwise there will be people online who won't be able to hear it. But yeah, sorry, I'm not, I'm gonna, I didn't want to do a... No, when we uh, speak primary yeah. energy. Yeah. Okay, renewables deliver 100% of the primary. We're counting their delivered energy as their primary. But with oil and natural gas and coal, it's what we're burning and we have the inefficiencies. Yes, okay. So if, we're count okay. if what we're yes. talking to policymakers and otherwise is primary energy, it really didn't matter when renewables are one or 2%. But if you're talking 40%, they might be 60, 70% of the delivered energy so while it, being 40% of primary. So I think we may, I think we may deal, I think, let me answer a question if it's not the right question. If I'm, so the way we try and do this is we try and say, um, when we, what we measure, what we try and do is put this on a like-for-like -like basis. So what we say is, what we can measure in terms of renewables is the amount of electricity which is generated. But we know we lose some of that power when we put it through the power system. And it's a 30, 38%. So we assume we lose about between 35 and 40%. To make sure, when we put it into primary energy space, we say how much... Um, uh, renewables, wind and solar power, would you need in primary energy space, assuming you lose 35 to 40% of it to generate the power that we get? And then in primary energy space, we, we add, we gross it up by 35 or 40%. So then we're sort of comparing apples and apples. Um, now, 35 to 40% may not be the right one and so on, but, but first order, that's how we try and make sure we're comparing apples and apples by sort of grossing it up by that amount. There are other international agencies that don't do that, and I end up, I worry they compare apples and oranges, and in some sense under, underestimate the role of primary energy, but we're grossing that up to, to try and avoid um, that problem. Um, do we deal with world wars? Um, no, we, no, we don't. And um, so I think in some sense, when you're trying to do a 25-year-old, 25-year-ahead scenario, you know there will be um, various types of conflicts over that period of time. Um, but they will hopefully touch would be transitional things rather than sort of permanent states. Um, um, and it's just, in some sense, just uh, it's, it's getting so extreme it's hard to do. But if you look back in time, world wars have played a significant role in shifting fuel mixes. So one of the major factors which allowed oil um, to gain in share, a big part of its gain in well, share came around after World War I. Interestingly for natural gas, you have a big kick up in its share in, in after World War II. Um, I think I understand some of those mechanisms, but I know I don't understand other parts of the mechanism. But world wars in the past have had significant impacts on the fuel mixes. In, in not all ways I fully understand, but I don't build that in um, to, to going forward. Okay, so um, we're about at the time to stop, but I'm gonna ask you a question that I think I've asked you every time you've come here, which is you're about to go out on this tour and talk to people about your outlook, and you have to think about what to do uh, for next year's outlook. What is your preoccupying question that you didn't get to do in this one that you wanna think about for the next one that people should come up and talk to you about? Um, 
my, my team put their heads in their hands at this point because I come up with something and they go, oh no. So, so just for follow up, when Sarah asked this last year, I said uh, 3D printing, additive manufacturing. And we did, and the idea was that could just change the need for transportation if more and more things are 3D printed. And, and um, in fact, there was a newspaper that produced a story on the Sunday before we produced the Energy Outlook saying, in BP's new Energy Outlook, there's a big section on 3D printing. They just guessed there would be one. And it turned out <laughs> there's nothing on 3D printing in here. Um, and the reason why is we looked hard uh, at 3D printing, and I think it ha can have huge implications for prototyping of different products, huge for certain types of products, it will become the dominant source of, of, of manufacturing. Um, over 90% of hearing aids are, are printed um, because they're small, high quality, and tend to be quite bespoke, perfect for that. Our sense is of the analysis we've done so far, although this, is, this technology will keep evolving, will keep getting better, it doesn't look like it can completely reform mass manufacturing over the, over the next 25 years, is our best guess at the moment, which is why it doesn't come here. It must be, um, one, one issue here must be, I think, um, the impact of artificial intelligence and digitization. That, uh, I, we have energy efficiency declining uh, improving over this period of time, so quickening gains in energy efficiency. Could artificial intelligence and digitalization just transform that? Does it introduce a discontinuity in terms of energy efficiency? In some sense, we all hope so, because that would be the most efficient way in which we can get to um, start getting on that on the, on the orange, even, even faster transition path. And this goes back to what the Nikos' uh, question. And so I think. The impact of digitalization, both on the ability for us to produce energy, but also consume that energy more efficiently, efficiently must be something, must be, is a sort of huge question, and I'm not sure we've got our arms fully around it in the in energy outlook, and I apologize for my team, because I've now said it, and so we're online, <laughs> apologies. Uh, well, listen, Spencer, on behalf of everybody in the CSIS Energy Program, thank you so much uh, to you and your team for coming here and sharing this with us today. We hope everyone will go out and take a look at it and give you lots of questions as you're out uh, explaining it on the road. So please join me in thanking Spencer for his time.